In this episode of the Iowa Idea Podcast, I had the honor to sit down with Vera Rose Smith, artist, educator, and curator living in Iowa City. I was able to catch up with Vera before she moves to Chicago. We discuss her approach to art and education, art in the public domain, and how everyone has a tree story. We touch upon what she learned as an artist from her design education program at Harvard. Hint, it's the power of prototyping and how failure is a learning process in design. She holds BAs in studio art, art history, and environmental science. She has an MA in art history from the University of Iowa, an MBA from Quantic School of Business and Technology. And if that wasn't enough, she holds a Master of Design from Harvard University's Graduate School of Design. We talk about aesthetic and environmental impacts of big box stores and how we let something so ugly become so pervasive. And then we talk about her art installations, her perspectives, and how she uses education to help others connect with art. I thank Vero for taking the time to sit down with us. You can find out more about her on her website. Thanks so much for joining me on the Iowa Idea for, for uh, guests of the podcast. Do you mind uh, telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm Vero Rose Smith. I'm an artist, curator, and educator, and I'm currently the Associate Curator of Special Projects at the Stanley Museum of Art at the University of Iowa. I'm also an Adjunct Assistant Professor of Practice at the University of Iowa. Awesome. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about, um, all of those roles sound uh, really interesting. Can you tell me, we'll, we'll dive in, we'll start as, uh, as a curator. Uh, what do you do as a curator? Mm-hmm. So I was initially hired to run a program called the Legacies for Iowa Collection Sharing Project, which brought our collections across the state of Iowa during this fallow period where we have not had a building. And this project has sunset because we are now building a new building, which is so exciting. Um, So that has transitioned into more of a, a traditional curatorial role where I'm doing research on our collections. I am managing our interns and helping them learn fundamentals of art historical research. I am still planning interesting public programming, though that has shape-shifted in our current cultural climate and in our pandemic days. And I am integrating formal classroom study with the type of work that I do. So the course that I'm teaching now is called Art at the End of the World, and it is a practice course that is enabling students to get hands-on experience and running public programs through a cultural institution like a museum and then also encouraging students to produce new creative work which we will stage as an exhibition Uh, so it's a lot Um, in the managing of the collection sharing component of this job i was working with all different types of communities across the state of iowa and that necessitated a lot of creativity in creating shows that were relevant to those specific communities that also played upon the strengths of our collections and helped us um, make really important connections with places that hadn't necessarily seen themselves as part of our arts ecosystem before. That's great. Um, a couple things that I want to explore there a little bit too is just some of the yeah. challenges that the museum has had, right? Kind of uh, post flood and then where the building can be finding a site and then having to find a, a new site. Um, 
that's at least my my understanding was yeah. that we initially thought it was going to be in one location downtown and now uh, obviously there there's construction going on uh, closer to the library but uh, do you do you mind talking a little bit about some of the creative challenges you've had during this time without you know running a museum without a physical building Sure. So I should caveat this by saying that I am not super involved in the new building planning, and I'm really grateful to the leadership of our director, Lauren Lessing, and all of my peers who have been working with this institution a lot longer. I've only been here for about, uh, it'll be four years this summer, and I was brought on initially to this very specific project. Um, but I know that in the time that I've been here, the location did change. And I think it's actually, I'm not sure about all of the circumstances that led up to that. Again, being yeah. um, outside of the planning process and also new to the institution. But I'm so excited about where the new museum is going to be constructed because it's so close to the heart of campus. We will have direct physical connection with the main libraries and all of their archival resources. And I'm also kind of excited about the interactions with the recreation center <laughs> across <laughs> Burlington Street. I think there could be some really cool uh, artistic ways that we can collaborate with with them. So I don't know if that quite answers your question. No, that's that's great. Uh, um, challenges. Another part of the question. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> When, uh, with with some of the ex, uh, exhibitions that you were putting on and staging across the state, what were some of the, the interesting surprises for you as you went to different communities? It sounds like some of them might have surprised themselves, but what were some of the interesting surprises from your perspective? I think what folks were most interested in seeing, I kind of assumed that most communities that I was working with would be very excited about depictions of the state of Iowa and agriculture. And that was certainly true. Our most traveled show was curated by my colleague, Kathy Edwards, who has since retired. And it is called Farm Life in Iowa. And it is a collection of photographs by A.M. Wedick that depict farms across the state of Iowa from between the years 1935 to about 1956 through early 60s. Um, so that was really popular. And one of the surprises, so it wasn't surprising that it was popular, but one of the surprises in staging the show is that many of the farms that have been photographed were in and around Makokota. And so when we staged that show at the Makokota Art Experience, some of the children in some of those photographs were able to come to the reception. And they, of course, are no longer children, but able to share their own experience of growing up on the farms depicted. And that was really special and wonderful. Oh, that's great. So in your, your role as an educator, because I want to talk about that a little bit and also then dig in more as, as an artist as well. Can you, can you tell me how you became interested in, in becoming an educator? Sure. So I grew up in a small rural town in northern Illinois called Sandwich. And when I was growing up, I was always a very nerdy, arty kid. And I loved all of the music classes and art classes I was able to take. and there was a kind of community culture of looking at funding and thinking that funding should no longer go to the arts for our public school system. So we had a couple of referendums that were put before the community throughout my time in school and money was always really, really tight to keep these programs going, but they were so important to me. And so I thought in high school that I would go to college and become a biology teacher so that I could sneak art into the curriculum 
no matter what, even if funding for the art got officially slashed, students would still have access to learning about art. And so I, I was already interested in science and I wanted to do a kind of art and science mashup. So that was the originating point. I'd always thought of myself as an artist and I didn't really know how to do that professionally, but I saw people demonstrating what it meant to be a professional teacher. So that made sense to me. And I was teaching music lessons through a lot of my high school era. Um, so I, I loved teaching. I had some hands-on experience doing it. I was excited to do that in college. But when I got to college, which I went to Augustana in Rock Island, which was a wonderful experience, um, I was frustrated with the education curriculum. I felt like it wasn't in-depth enough. And it also could potentially add a whole year to your undergraduate degree because of having to do your practicum as a teacher. And I couldn't afford to do that. So yeah. instead, I ended up um, triple majoring in environmental science, studio art, and art history. So I could still study science, particularly the biological sciences, and also think about how to communicate the urgency of climate change through other media. So I was able to do a lot of independent research as an undergrad, which is really special. And I did work on the history of garden design, particularly through the lens of cemeteries and did a case study on a cemetery in the Quad Cities. And then from there, went to grad school. I studied art history at the University of Iowa. And I focused again on this intersection of environmental and cultural histories. I wrote about big box stores as an architectural form and how we allowed something so ugly to become so pervasive. University of Iowa, I really missed making things. I loved research, I loved writing, I loved thinking about architectural spaces and the ways that our culture physically can separate us from a broader natural world, but I wanted to make things about that too beyond writing. So I went to design school at Harvard's Graduate School of Design, where I studied art design in the public domain, and I ended up producing a project that was more of a visual score, a piece of music that I could teach anybody with any background to read in real time. And the music was based on all of these stories I collected about people's interactions with trees. So the idea being from, from recent psychological studies that people aren't willing to change their minds or their actions based on facts, rather right, they right. will change their actions based on feeling and emotion. And when you talk to people about trees, oh my gosh, everybody has a tree And how story. we allowed something so, so ugly to become there, so I came pervasive. back to Iowa because my partner was here and just so happened to be here at the right time to step into this position at the Stanley Museum of Art. That's fantastic. And I, I, I love the, the combination of art and science and how you've synthesized those. As, as a side note, mm -hmm. uh, when I, I initially came to Iowa City for my undergrad and uh, uh, it was initially a double major in broadcast and film and pre-dentistry. <laughs> oh, I was, wow. <laughs> I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't sure if I wanted to go more of a hard science route or more kind of the creative storytelling side of things and ended mm. up uh, focusing a little bit more or a lot more on more uh, kind of liberal arts and um, more about, and then it, then it even evolved away from uh, broadcast and film. But uh, another note is mm. one of my mm. best friends that I grew up with, uh, in, and I grew up in Northern Illinois as well. Uh, he and I both attended Iowa and we've both ended up back in Iowa City. Our lives just brought us back. And he is uh, 
uh, immunology and virology researcher. So he runs a research lab uh, in the College of Medicine here. Uh, but his uh, his hobby is bot is um, is uh, bonsai, and he so he always is fascinated with with trees. So I, I love the idea that, uh, like you said, everybody has a a tree story, and on that. <laughs> That rational, like with climate change, right? And with anything, you know, my, my belief is that we're not rational creatures. We're rationalizing no. creatures. So <laughs> yeah. we'll give, we'll give an explanation for why we believe something, but uh, it, it's still a, a, a heavy duty kind of emotional response to something rather than a truly rational response. Can you talk to me a little bit more about the, the big box stuff? So, because as a, from, you're right, from an aesthetic standpoint, I just, it, Personally, I just find it disgusting, like, you know, the lack of uh, creativity that we see. Uh, and also, I used to feel like there might be more regionalism in, in urban areas, like based on certain influences. Mm. And, and then now, especially with big box expansion, from my perspective, it's, you could get dropped in the middle of any strip mall and not really know where you were in the U.S., Right. And that's exactly the architectural point of big box stores. So I was interested in this topic, again, coming from a small town. My parents have worked in retail my entire life. Uh, They both work at different furniture stores now. But when I was growing up, we all as a family worked at a small locally owned furniture store that was housed in a former Walmart. (laughs) And it was called the World Furniture Mall. And so that really early experience, um, I was working there from the time I was like 14 and could get my worker's permit through the time that I graduated high school. And so my teenage years were spent in a big box building. And then the only places we as teenagers could hang out at night, like after dark, was the Walmart across the street from the shop that my parents and I worked in that had been built to be bigger than the first Walmart. (laughs) So it it was just a really... um, interesting experience with that type of space. And and I was so interested in how retail spaces act as public or third spaces is a term that's used often in in the design fields um, for communities that otherwise do not have an interest in creating spaces that are civic in nature for those same types of activities of like hanging out, right? Or just social connection in space that was really happening in stores in the community that I grew up in and in big box stores in particular. But I also found them really, really ugly and I didn't understand why there were so many of them. And it seemed like a really big environmental problem in terms of the type of consumption that these stores propagate and perpetuate. And the architectural materiality of the stores too. These are not materials that are intended to be useful for much more than 15 or 20 years. And these buildings are almost impossible to maintain. And they're also really energetically inefficient. So a lot of things are happening with these. They were being built all over the place during my childhood in the 90s and the aughts. And there has been a decline in the construction of new big box stores over the past decade which I think is good. And some of it has to do with shifts in population and with the internet and different types of buying opportunities available to more people now. So that was the original point for the interest. And and thinking of my parents as sales professionals, you know, my mom is a interior designer and her whole purpose in life is to help people find joy in their homes. And that's such a different orientation to a buying process than I'm going to go and buy 
this giant pack of toilet paper being very topical right now, but you know, just bulk over quality. Right. Right. So I was interested in the types of spaces that, that privilege bulk over quality. That's interesting. Uh, from a, a side note, uh, I might have the timing off when, when you were here, but by chance, uh, when you were in Iowa city, uh, was the, were, were they doing some of the art studio stuff in the old Menards building? Yes. So I came to University of Iowa for my first graduate degree in 2012 and the studio spaces were still out there. And then when I came back to assume this position with the museum, the museum offices were actually still at the Menards building. So I interviewed there and then our offices moved back to the old Museum of Art. But what a space. And I also collected a couple of uh, reflections on working in that space from graduate students who had done so um, for the thesis that I ended up writing about big box stores. So I have a chapter about adaptive reuse of these buildings and whether or not that's truly tenable as a solution to what I term an architectural problem. So what were, what were some of the themes that emerged from the, the students that were, were using that as space? It seems like a lot of students, and so I took this directly. I didn't talk with folks. I was quoting from some articles written at the time, okay. um, to be fair. But a lot of students seem to love the openness of the space and the ability to have organic interactions with others working in other media that they might not have had interactions with otherwise before that space had been used because the ceramic studios, for example, had been much further away from the painting studios. So in this building, everyone was able to interact in new ways. Yeah, I, I imagine that, um, you know, just the idea of studios in general is when you have people you know, working on something, when you get to see works in progress, you can also go around and see other works in progress and talk to people about what they're trying to accomplish or challenges that they're running into. And sounds like on the on the plus side, there could be kind of a kind of happy collisions of of ideas there in a in environment like that. Absolutely. Um, some of the negatives that were pointed out by students who had studio space in the old Menards building was the sound quality. Mm -hmm. It was extremely echoey and loud all the time, and it, that made it very difficult for some folks to work. And then also just the temperature yeah. <laughs> differential. And it was hard to regulate temperature. And um, this is part of that energetic inefficiency I was talking about earlier. Because these buildings are just a big open space with very tall ceilings, it's super difficult to make sure that the temperature is consistent and that it's being regulated efficiently so and light there was not a lot of natural light yeah yeah uh, and and related just uh, I think you know on the from a business perspective we're I think coming to grips with also the failure of open office systems too as well as they're they're not nearly yes. as humane <laughs> yeah. as 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 I think people position them to be it's just going to get nerdy as an architectural historian and shout out Frank Lloyd Wright for developing some of the first open office plans, um, which happens much earlier than we think of as a concept, like the um, late 40s, early 50s. Yeah, by chance, have you been to, uh, oh, shoot, now I'm, I'm trying to remember which Chicago suburb, his home and office. Um, it's Oak Park. Yes. Have you been to the, have you toured his old house and, and studios there? 
I have not yet. I'm moving to Chicago this summer, so that's definitely on my list of things to do once everything's open again also. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What, and what will be bringing you to Chicago? My partner has accepted a position on faculty at Northwestern. Oh. So he will be teaching at their law school, which is right downtown. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's a gorgeous area. Yeah. And uh, best best of luck on the on the move. Uh, we hate to <laughs> thank you. Hate to lose you. Uh, question for you to then now as an as an artist. So we talked a little bit about curator, a little bit as educator. Now as an artist, uh, do you mind telling me a little bit about uh, just your the media that you participate in and and your kind of vision as an artist? Absolutely. So I work with large-scale data sets that relate to climate change, and I produce participatory installations and sound works that help people tactilely engage with the devastation of climate change on a personal level. And that can look like a lot of different things. Um, Back to my tree story thesis work at Harvard, that was a piece of music that was, so I invented a new form of visual notation that looks kind of like tree rings, and then anybody can play it. So the staging of the work, I staged it twice, and I invited anybody from the public to come and be a musician with me, and I taught them how to read this music in real time. We would perform several movements, and then we talked about the process of learning how to do this together. And that, for me, was a real way of both speaking to what we stand to lose in the face of climate change, which is experiences with a broader natural world, and also the livability of this planet, um, but also ways that we can approach solutions is creative problem solving in community. And from there, I've done a couple of other projects that explore similar themes. One was called Water Bearers. It was one of the first shows I staged back here in Iowa. Uh, where I had made everything after moving back. I had done a couple of other shows of photography and work that had been produced elsewhere after moving to Iowa again. But Water Bearers was the first show that I had completely produced in Iowa after graduating. So this was about water quality and wastefulness of freshwater resources in the United States. And I produced these sculpted canvas forms that were meant to look a little bit like abstract water droplets and then painted them in collaboration with different weather conditions. Um, So I would cover the object that I had created in different types of paints and then leave that object outside in a box so that there wasn't runoff. Um, When it was foggy, when it was rainy, misty, and that produced all kinds of different surface effects on the paint. So it became a real collaboration with water. And then these objects were suspended from dousing rods So there's a tradition of, in particular, women being able to feel where water is in the earth, which I don't think is very scientifically verified at all. But in my family's history, my grandmother was known as a dowser. And so I found these rods, um, sourced them from friends around Iowa City. There are some types of traditional woods that are said to be better at sussing out water than others. So dogwood in particular and willow. And I suspended these droplets in different clusters that represented statistics about water quality in the state of Iowa and nationally and globally. (laughs) So I tend to do a lot of work with spreadsheets (laughs) first 
and then translate those spreadsheets into these physical experiences. That's that's awesome. So as a kind of a nerd uh, side note too, I'm a big fan of uh, mm-hmm. effective data visualization. Uh, do you ever yes. explore Edward Tufte's work? No, but I'll write it down. He uh, does a lot in uh, um, data visualization. And what's interesting, I think, now is uh, that's where he kind of in a, in a corporate world uh, kind of made his professional name. And and now it sounds like my understanding is kind of given up on that uh, to just be more of a practicing hmm. artist. So it's, it's, it's interesting. Oh, cool. Uh, but he has some really interesting visualizations and uh, some of his, his work that I've I found fascinating too is when he dissects old pieces of data visualization for why something might have been really mm. elegant. And one, one of his uh, ones that he dissects is uh, it was Napoleon's march to, uh, uh, to Russia and just showing in, in these lines how, how the troops were declining and, and kind of mm. over time. But you, so you very quickly can see what what was going on and troop loss and just how devastating something was uh in a in a fairly elegant way but uh i had no idea that you were you were working with uh sp- spreadsheets and data sets at the beginning of the process it's <laughs> yeah. fascinating yeah um another project that i staged last summer at the makers loft in downtown iowa city was about particulate matter in the atmosphere And this was kind of a culmination of the type of work Water Bears was engaged in tactilely, so with painted forms, and then also collaborative music making, like my tree project. Um, So I created these forms that looked a little bit like lungs, which feels really, oh my gosh, very prescient now (laughs) in the age of coronavirus. They were made out of um, paper masks and then stuffed with... um, scrubbies like metal scrubbies you might use to clean pots and pans because our lungs in part do that they separate larger particulate matter from the air that we need to circulate our own blood and then I, I created these sculpted canvas forms much like the droplets from the water bears project to really shape the mask into more of a lung shape and then these were suspended on a wall on a sequined black background. And then there was a musical component where I used statistics of uh, particulate matter in the atmosphere globally to create a visual score that I then taught some local lovely music friends, um, including composer Christine Burke, who is fantastic and came to the Center of New Music here at the University of Iowa, and uh, Justin Comer, who has a fantastic local music podcast called I Hear I See, which is a free concert series when we're able to have concerts. Right. And um, many other folks helped me stage this. We, we staged it a couple times around the city. But yeah, that felt really like the direction my work will continue to go, where I, I love paints and I like the materiality of paint a lot. But I also like creating these participatory experiences that have other sensorial elements like sound. And what is it that, that you like about that? I think climate change is a full body problem. (laughs) And so the more of our bodies we can engage in thinking through these issues, the more of a visceral response we will have in addition to the emotional response I hope my work elicits. 
Thank you. And yeah, it's that, just fun to make music with people. Right. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah. It seems like a, a form of, as, as long as humans have been around, a pretty good form of bonding. Mm. So wanted to uh, ask you a little bit. I know we talked about a, a little bit about growing up uh, and your, your parents, but mm-hmm. if you don't mind a little bit more too about like what you see as, as an artist, educator, curator, any of those hats that you wear, um, where, where your early influences came from and probably more importantly, mm-hmm. where you saw uh, uh, forms of, of support to, uh, to practice your craft. Oh, absolutely. So in my work as an educator and a scholar of pedagogy, I do a lot of writing and research and teaching about access to higher education, particularly in rural contexts. So I think about this a lot in terms of my childhood. Um, I'm a first-generation college graduate. I'm from a rural town. I'm also, at the time that I was going to college, from a low-income family. And so a lot of things were stacked against me succeeding academically. And my parents were always incredibly supportive of me exploring whatever I was interested in. And we had so many instruments around our house when I was a kid. And we had a library. I didn't know anybody else that had a library. (laughs) And my parents specifically had bought a house that was out in the middle of the woods. So outside of the small town I grew up in. Um, And so I spent a lot of time outside alone as a kid that really got me interested in ecology and biology and humanity's connection with the natural world. And without those early experiences, I definitely wouldn't have been on the path that I've been on. And I talked a little bit about and retail back to and the things they're passionate about. My dad's also a musician, and I think he sees himself more as a musician than as a, a salesperson for sure. Um, but their work and their care for their clients was always really important to me as an example of how to live and how to work in community and interact with other people with respect and with care. And that is not something as an experience that's possible at stores like Walmart, usually, you know, big box stores that are focused on getting people out quickly with as much stuff as possible. So, yeah, I think all of it was incredibly influential. And in my teaching, especially, um, I should say that I spent two years teaching at Kirkwood Community College here in Iowa City. And I was doing that in addition to my full-time curatorial work. And I was teaching the introductory art history classes. And because I felt often in college, like I was a little bit behind the curve, (laughs) I hadn't had a lot of the experiences academically that many of my peers did at my private liberal arts college. I am very sensitive now to students that feel like they just don't get it, or they don't have the lived experience to understand what we're looking at, or they don't have anything to contribute in the discussion of art. And I employ a lot of different tactics to give students agency in my classroom to explore their interests and see themselves as part of this long lineage of creative production that is truly global. And how, how, how do you do that with, with the students? Because uh, I think one, I'm just first interested in if they feel like they, they might not be prepared and how do you how do you help them like maybe get a little bit of of confidence maybe that is going to be all right and then what do you, what do you see blossom when they they do take take those steps oh my gosh that's such a great question so my favorite thing about teaching art history in particular is that we all have a common starting point in class together we 
are able to share the experience of looking at something at the same time in the same place. And I force my students to do this often. We have to spend time in silence looking together and then we start to describe what we see and every student is expected to contribute something and so it can even be something as simple as oh i see that in this abstract painting there is a blue curly cue in the lower right corner none of this is invalid at all so students are welcome just to start describing what they see and they think it's a trick question often the mm -hmm. first time that we do that this they're like really i can just say that i see this black squiggle and I'm like, yeah, you do see it. We all see it. This is great. <laughs> you know, um, So building confidence in expression verbally in real time with other peers is, is part of that, that exercise. And I should also say that Kirkwood College here in Iowa City is one of the diverse, most diverse community colleges in the state. Um, these statistics have been reported differently in the past academic year, and I'm not quite sure what precipitated that shift, but it was a majority minority campus when I was teaching there from 2017 to 2019, most of my students were first generation students. Many were first generation Americans. Many were immigrants. Many came to this country as refugees. Many were not only new to college, but to the English language. So just creating these opportunities to speak in very simple terms about things that we all see together help build confidence and show that we are a single class sharing an experience. So that, that was some of my, my pedagogical thinking was just trying to create community in every way possible in my classroom by designing experiences that we could all participate in. Um, other ways that I do this, which aren't really discipline specific, uh, are at the beginning of each class period, I had students rearrange themselves around the room according to some kind of spectrum that had to do with the theme for the week. So for example, when we talk about surrealist art, I usually have students arrange themselves by the last dream they can remember. <laughs> and so in that way, they find new people that they have maybe not talked to in class before who they have something in common with automatically. And they have to decide what that spectrum looks like, which is one of the key components of curating of art history as a research discipline is you need to find connections always, and then you need to decide how to order those connections. So that's just a really simple thing that we do every week that helps build that new type of community and create the basis for conversation that's pretty low stakes. Yeah, I love that. I, and uh, I like the rearrangement uh, you know, on a, a regular basis of just where the students might be sitting. And cause I'm, a, I'm a big believer in that, um, even where you sit in a room, whether it's classrooms or, or business rooms, like a lot of times out of creatures of habit, everybody sits the, the same spot they always sat at. And for me, mm -hmm. just even small things about just changing your perspective. But uh, what I love about what I'm taking away from what you said is also those, those connections where somebody might, oh, that's somebody that has a similar experience or here's something we might have in common that I didn't think about. And it, just an, another way to connect with another human is, is always interesting and I think important. Thank you. Yeah. And a lot of my goals in teaching art history don't have anything to do with producing more art historians. The world probably doesn't need that many more. I would like to still have a job also. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, so what are students in my classroom for? 
they aren't going to become professional curators or archivists or professors of art history or scholars of the discipline of art. You know, most of them are there because something about art is exciting and interesting to them. And they just want to learn a little bit more about it and have practical ways of continuing to learn about art in their everyday lives that will probably be very professionally deviant from somebody who is a professional art historian. So that's what I think about a lot too. And I, I design courses that don't have tests for this reason, um, which is very controversial in the discipline, as you might imagine. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I design courses that have a lot of hands-on activities so that we can all have the experience of making and thinking with our hands, as all artists must do. So a good example of that might be when we talk about medieval architecture and we talk about monks in monasteries that are completely self-sufficient. I have students break up into groups along some kind of spectrum, like I described before. So they're in this new group of people already. And then they get to design their own monastery or their own place of retreat. <laughs> and they have to tell me all the things that need to be included for it to be an insular community and what their daily schedule would be like at this place. So really working in groups, thinking through the types of decisions that people in the past have made that precipitate the art we're looking at together is my approach rather than having students wrote, memorize a date and an artist's name and a material. Yeah. Yeah. I love that because uh, for me, from a, a design perspective, I, I, I'm a big believer in context and trying to understand what, what were some of the contextual elements at play uh, at a certain time too, rather than here's an answer and that answer always holds true. Right. It's right. that, and, and for me, from when I would work with my design teams and when I work as a consultant, I try to tell business, I don't believe in necessarily a right or wrong answer. I believe in trying mm -hmm. to optimize. And a lot of that is for the, for the context that we're in. And when you do have people that are used to, I remember to date or I remember to, they're used to having a right answer and it's really mm -hmm. hard uh, when you're yeah. doing, dealing with complex problems is that it's, there's a lot of things that you need to synthesize and it's, it's hard to have a right answer rather than, you know, just how can you have a better answer? I don't know if that Absolutely. makes sense. But. Yeah. And so a right answer, so a better answer versus a right answer and right. context. Yeah, that, that's super hard for students who maybe haven't had an experience in the arts as a student before. Um, there, there aren't right answers when you make art. You know, mm -hmm. There are things that better express what you're attempting to express. And the same is true for the study of historical art. And you need to understand so much of the context of the history of the piece that we're, you're looking at to really capture the motivations of the person that made it and the culture that precipitated that object. And so one of the ways that I do that with my students too, give them a broader context is I, about half of my class is field trips. Um, so students are visiting, practicing artists in our own community and they're getting hands-on experience with organizations that are active in new cultural production. And then they get to speak with professionals in these fields about both their background and training, but also how what they do connects to all of the historical stuff we're looking at in class. And that's part of my broader goal of thinking about what my students are in my classroom to do. They're not there to be art historians. They're there because they care about art. I want to provide them opportunities and connections to continue experiencing art in their own community, even after the class is done. Yeah, that's great. I'm a uh, question for you, and, and this might be more in the context of your design education at, at Harvard. Mm -hmm. Uh, but two things that I'm hearing from you 
is one is I'm a, I'm a big believer that uh, one of the big things about design is being intentional mm-hmm. and, and it's, it's knowing what you're trying to accomplish. Right. And so I'm, I'm hearing that because it sounds like you're, you're, you think uh, very thoughtfully about the outcomes that you want for your students. And, and, mm-hmm. and I really appreciate that. And then from a design perspective, I'm curious on your perspective, because this is, this is just an N of one. So it's not a large data set, but it's me. I feel like certain things with design too, is once you're exposed to it, you can't unsee it. Right. Oh and my gosh. Yes. So I'm kind of curious, like all the different perspectives you have is like, <laughs> how do you keep yourself sane just walking around a, a city from both admiring or just being disgusted by design choices, by architecture. Uh, but can you talk to me a little bit about just after being exposed to formal design programs, mm. how does the world look different to you? Do you interact with the world differently? Oh my gosh, absolutely. But I think some of that difference actually came from studying architectural history at the graduate level first before going on to design practice. Um, so a lot of the problem, like that's what galvanized me to go to design school is seeing these problems in the built world and being like, there have to be solutions. And as a historian of this stuff, I'm not going to get to make those solutions, right? Mm-hmm. I can make recommendations based on historical precedent, but I'm not the one actually creating the new reality. And so that's what I was really excited about for design school. And I think that the program I did participate in delivered on that in so many ways. And yeah, absolutely cannot unsee <laughs> some of the things that as you're describing, like I, I actually love these blips in civic architectures in particular when you know, there's like a ramp for people that use wheelchairs, but it's it's really windy and goes around the entire circumference of the building. And like, it might be at grade for code, but it's still really, really inconvenient <laughs> for right. anyone that actually needs it. Um, so to me, what design education helped me do was envision ways of making the world kinder and mm-hmm. making the world more uh, accessible isn't quite the right word that I mean here. I think kinder is, yeah, I'll stay with yeah. kinder, making the world a kinder place. And that was something that I, I really thought studying the history of art and design could also do is seeing what has worked in the past and what hasn't. And then taking it a step further with design education, like, okay, how do we actually implement the things that we know work from historical precedent? But some of the things that stay with me from design school, even beyond new eyes for built environments, has to do more with process. Um, I'm kind of a perfectionist, as I think a lot of people in artistic disciplines tend to be. And design training versus a traditional MFA training, even though I know MFAs do this too, but design training really focuses on iteration and failure. Mm -hmm. And that was so profound for me was this focus on, okay, make it and break it, make it and break it, make it and break it until it doesn't break anymore, (laughs) you know? And that's not necessarily the approach in uh, traditional fine arts or painting. One of my undergraduate degrees is in painting, so I feel like I have a little authority to speak to that. Yeah. Um, And it it was very classical studio training. Um, Of course, things are are fixed, but it's the the quick iteration of design that I really liked and that I, I carry with me in my pedagogy and in my curation as well and in my studio practice for sure. Yeah, it's one of the things that really resonated personally for me with design is, is that notion of uh, iteration and learning and trying to do mm-hmm. smaller experiments to explore before you, you know, jump into something huge. And right, right. You know, and some of that might be modeling, some of it, you know, figuring things out, but it's, it, 
that's, I think it's a challenge for a lot of people to the, and using kind of a cliche, but, you know, failing, you know, failing quickly so you can learn faster. And mm-hmm. just when you introduce a, a word like fail or failure, that's also already have, you, you paint a cloud over it. But I find with designers, we can talk about problems and problems, mm-hmm. not a bad word, yeah. uh, but it's, it, it, it feels like sometimes it's like inside baseball when we're talking about some of those, but I, I do see that as a big challenge for people in generally is how do you, how do you iterate? And so I'm curious now with you, from your perspective in built environments is how does one experiment? Uh, and just a little bit of background, my mental model right now is thinking about um, almost failures of over-designed communities. Yeah. And, uh, so I think of like uh, Walt, you know, Walt Disney and then whatever the uh, white picket fence community they were trying to build in Florida. But when something becomes mm-hmm. over-designed, also the challenge. Wasn't that Century the, City? Yes. Yes. Thank you. City. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. And it, it, it's oh, like, yeah. In the abstract, all these principles sound uh, inviting. And then when they're and I don't know, I just also see like cities that I love seem to have more organic growth. And that, to me, I, I can't, I can't square that mentally because it feels like, feels like organic growth. It's not, it's not intentional and yet design, I celebrate intentionality. And so it's a struggle I have. Uh, so I didn't mean to turn you into a therapist, but I'm curious on <laughs> how you square that kind of those built environments uh, and then both perfection and, you know, the notion of uh, iterating as a designer. Oh my gosh. Okay. That's a lot. Um, <laughs> Feel free to unpack any of it or just tell me. Right. Uh, go let's, let's go back to the, the false perfection of places like Century City or intentionally planned communities yes. that feel very false and weird to be in. Mm-hmm. I think the root of that weirdness and that falsity lies in the fact that there is no agency for the people that are encountering that environment and are trying to make a home there. This is the vision, a very top-down vision of one person or a firm saying, this is how you should live. And that's the root of the failure. What makes so many cities that we enjoy being in and so many civic spaces that we enjoy being in enjoyable is the fact that we can have some small influence on that space and its use. And we do that in community and we do that intuitively. And I don't think intuition and planning or attention to detail are necessarily oppositional. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of the things that feel good to us feel good to us because of the very real physical realities of our own bodies, of how we see comfort, especially in built spaces. And if we're not allowed to do that, right? <laughs> if we're not yeah. allowed to to tweak our environments and personalize them even in very small ways, then we don't see ourselves there. So so good design is is based on these intuitions that form from hard physical realities, right? Like, our intu- what is intuition if not the chemical aspects of our thought patterns becoming more apparent to us, right? Like, the connections that we're making all the time brought to the surface, that's, that's good design. That, that is the detail-orientedness that we can celebrate. Thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate that, uh, the notion of agency in that. and. Um, probably could go go on for a long time on this. But now now one of the, the things that I'm seeing is because I do do a lot of work with um, kind of complexity and complex mm. systems. And one of the one of the things that is a, a like a principle for me is that uh, complex systems don't yield to previous best practices. 
and we can solve complicated problems and, and, or technical problems. And those are usually best done efficiently through a hierarchy, right? But uh, when we're dealing with complex problems, you usually need more perspectives and, and you do need to iterate. So now for me, at least I'm seeing a little bit of a, you know, cause urban areas built environment and where people are living and moving and the context of our lives continues to change well after a building is, is built, hopefully. Mm. Right? Uh, but how that is actually a complex ecosystem and it's adaptive. Mm. And yet sometimes we try to uh, um, almost force technical rules upon it and, and then doing that quickly. Right. I think that's like when you build a whole gated community or you build like century city, it was all mm. at once, right. Rather than, Hey, should we, should we do a block of this and see, see if it works. But it's, it's hard to do that when you're zoning and getting per- permits that you might come back to it later. Right. Yeah, there's a temporal aspect to comfort, right? Some of the ways that we revisit these ideas of comfort, these ideas of belonging, have to do with other ways of physically being at previous points in our lives. And temporality plays into physical environments in a way that we cannot replicate if we build everything at once. Like we always Mm -hmm. see the fake patina and know it's fake. There's something really profound about that almost universal longing of all people to see themselves as part of a progression of humanity, as part of a broader story of where we've been, where we're going, who we might become. And that's, that's part of this intuition as well, I think. Thank you. Um, couple more questions. I just want to be sensitive mm-hmm. to, to time. Yeah, I really, really appreciate your perspectives here. Um, one, of the, one of the questions I like to ask uh, folks is really looking at stories of craft, creativity, uh, yours or mentors or influences. Uh, but is there, are there stories of craft or creativity from mentors of yours that have influenced your, your thinking that, that you could share? Ooh, uh, to the question of agency and how we allow more people to have more say in their immediate environments, I am always inspired by the work of one of my mentors at Harvard, Christoph Wodisko, who is an artist known for his large-scale public projections. Uh, by projecting imagery and usually interviews with folks that normally do not have a platform, Christoph makes public spaces even more immediately public. So one of his projects that he was working on when I was in grad school, um, studying with him, was a project that was reclaiming monuments to not specifically Civil War era folks, but um, he was working with a, a statue of Abraham Lincoln, and he was projecting interviews with veterans from more recent militarized conflicts onto the face of... Abraham Lincoln at night, making it look like Lincoln was speaking to us, but with this voice in his face of somebody that's still engaged in, in conflict that we might not see every day. And I think that's so beautiful and such, and it doesn't physically damage the sculpture, which is something that can be um, a hang up for some folks, right. <laughs> you know, like we don't, to rebuild, to have influence and agency in a shared built environment that is very bureaucratic and top down in its design often means um, that we cannot make these physical changes. But what about these temporary interventions that can still allow for more voices to be heard? So that's a really good example. Um, Other folks, oh man, there's so many people that are so inspiring. I'm constantly inspired by all of the work at Public Space One. 
at the Center for Afrofuturist Studies, how these organizations in particular focus on small a art and the ability of every single person to be creative and to make something beautiful. And not just the ability, but the right to do that and integrate that into absolutely every day. Uh, and I admire that work so, so much. Um, yeah, and I love working with a, a state institution and with the People's Collection of Art in the state of Iowa. That's inspiring to me, too, that this collection was formed because um, we, we believe as a state that people should have access to great art. That's part of our legacy and our identity as Iowans. And that's, yep. that's really beautiful to me. So... Uh... As you get ready oh, and, to... Sorry, sorry. More things, yeah. more things. Yes, absolutely. Um, <laughs> um, my friend, Justin, who I mentioned before, who runs this wonderful local music series, I hear, I see. My friend, Chris Wiersma, who runs Feed Me Weird Things, which is a collective listening experience series. Uh, he, they're both brilliant curators. Um, and Chris, in particular, focuses on building listening environments where all can participate and be together in a way that I don't think many other programmers of music and of concert series are nearly as sensitive to. Uh, so I'm just so grateful for their work in our community and um, Andre Perry as well at the Anglert and yep. Witching Hour Festival. Oh my gosh, there's we're just so lucky <laughs> in Iowa City to have these incredible cultural leaders who are doing so much to create experience we can all take in. So what do you, uh, as you're getting ready for kind of next next chapter and being in a different physical space, what's your biggest takeaway from Iowa? Oh, wow. That's really hard. The so people that are so earnestly working to create community-based experiences that are profound and that can only happen here. And I, I don't think I would ever go to a new place with the expectation of replicating a community I come from, but I hope that that spirit of collaboration is to be found. I'm sure it is in Chicago. And I really love that the folks that make these types of decisions have made themselves so accessible in Iowa City. And I'm just so grateful to have been welcomed into this community in a small part. Um, so as I move forward, I, I just look, I'm, I'm so excited to meet more practitioners. I'm excited to return to Northern Illinois. Um, I'll be the sixth generation of my family to live in Chicago at some point, which is really exciting. Um, my dad was actually born there before moving out to the rural place that I grew up in. Um, so that's, it feels like a homecoming in a lot of ways. Um, and I'm, I'm really interested to see how that will impact the type of work I'll be making. That's awesome. And I want to just thank you so much for for your your time and your your perspectives, I really appreciated uh, having you on the show. Thank you so much, Matt. This was super fun. I'm so excited to hear this show. All the interviews you have lined up sound fascinating. 